Welcome back to another episode of Systemically Distorted Communication. We finished week three of the Chauvin trial. This week we had a chance to hear the defense bring their witnesses forward. And a few takeaways that I have were that one, professionals don't seem to agree. Two, the defense did not establish much reasonable doubt for the period after Floyd's Floyd went unconscious. And three, the prosecution may have hurt themselves by calling so many experts because of the inconsistencies throughout them, which helps the defense to establish reasonable doubt. All right, so let's get into this. First, I want to talk about Jonathan Rich. He's a medical doctor employed in uh, in Chicago. Chicago. He's a cardiologist, which is the study of the heart, and he's a university professor. And he testified that Floyd died of coronary pulmonary arrest caused by low oxygen, which was caused by the positional asphyxiation he was subjected to, and that the prone position made him unable to get proper oxygen. And he said with a high level of certainty that Floyd did not die from pulmonary, uh, or did not die from a primary cardiac arrest or drug overdose. And then he went into a lot of details about how he knows that, and he really broke it down, and I'm not going to go into all of that. So when he looked at the autopsy, though, he said that the thing that stuck out to him the most is the stuff that wasn't present. So um, he said the heart looked normal, so he he was expecting to see some damage to the heart, but there was, the heart's normal. The coronary artery disease is extremely common, so that didn't stand out as being an issue. And he excluded that from death. And there's no sign of heart attack and artery uh, from the artery blockage. And that the heart muscle showed zero evidence of heart attack or injury and not even microscopic damage. And one of the things that's been pointed out is that Lloyd had these this artery blockage. And I talked about it last week with the 75% and 95% blockage. But he said the left main artery had no narrowing, which is the most important one. So Floyd had some blockages in the other arteries, but they were not in the significant locations, as in as significant of a location. And therefore, he was able to rule that out as a cause of death. And he also said that there was no evidence that Floyd, that fentanyl caused his death. Then with that, as far as just from a medical standpoint, he said, because you can hear the officer saying on camera, I think he's passing out. And at that point, they should have known that they need to reposition him. And then when they check for a pulse and got no pulse, they should have absolutely in that moment started performing CPR or any life-saving procedure that they've been trained with. And he was then asked, uh, if Floyd had not been subjected to that nine minute of restraint, would he have survived? And he said yes. So I felt like this is a pretty <clears throat> a pretty strong witness for the prosecution. So the defense did their best to counter this, but uh I, I don't think they did a great job. I mean there there was just not a, a lot they can ask. They they did good with what they were able to do, but um I, I think that this witness was pretty strong for the prosecution. So they went back to the artery narrowing, and they pointed out that people with less than 90% uh, 
narrowing blockage have died and he can and the witness confirmed yes that's true and again over 75 percent is can be lethal so they're kind of just going back to remind the jury i think that hey he still had these blockages even though it wasn't in this particular artery there has still been deaths from these other arteries being blocked uh and void was had a very high narrowing and then one of the things that the defense brought up, which I think backfired on them a little bit, was they brought up that if these arteries are more narrow, doesn't it increase the chances of a heart attack? And what uh, Jonathan Rich said was that, no, it's actually the opposite. If you have less narrowing, you'd be more likely to have a heart attack statistically than if you had more, more narrowing. And the reason for that is he went in and he described how the heart is a muscle. So when you get these restrictions in certain vessels, it creates more. So you get a large restriction in one, and it just it makes more vessels in other areas to make up for that blood restriction. That's why somebody would be apparently more likely to have a heart attack with less, um, with less narrowing. Because if, if there's less narrowing and then they suddenly get a blockage, there's no other avenues for the blood to go to. So it's, you just have that particular artery. But in Floyd's case, there's this restriction. So his heart has adapted over time and created all these other avenues for blood flow. I thought that was pretty interesting. He also went on to say that the prone position, uh, one answering question from the de- from the defense, that the prone position is not inherently dangerous on a healthy person. And the defense also asked that with all his br- all the problems combined, the drugs, the blockage, or the narrowing, the adrenaline, the struggle, wouldn't that contribute to the, da- the danger in his death? And he said with the review of all the evidence that he saw, he didn't see anything to support that that being true. Prosecution also decided to bring up uh, Illinois Floyd, Floyd's brother. I, I'm taken back by this because it's, um, like, I guess I would understand why they would want to do that, but I don't know why it would be allowed. It did not contribute anything to the actual trial. And they went and talked about, how, you know, when they were growing up together, the type of person he was, um, how he liked cooking, his personal life, telling a little bit of stories about him. Uh, it, how he's a leader in the community. This doesn't make it. It just to me, this doesn't make sense bringing this into a a trial like this. It seems to just take the attention away from the facts of what happened and try to bring in outside information about the type of person he was. The type of person he was has nothing to do with the facts of what were happening on that particular day. It would be like the defense bringing in, you know, people from Floyd's past that were related to the crimes that he committed in the past to talk about what a bad person he was. It just wouldn't make sense. It does not, it it just doesn't connect to this particular situation. So I found it odd. And then on top of that, I found it even more odd that the news updates that I was getting after this. So before I had a chance to see the trial because of my time difference, I have to watch it in, uh, after it, so I don't watch it live. I wake up in the morning, and all the news things that I'm getting, the notifications on my phone, 
are saying that Floyd was a mama's boy. How, out of everything that they had in that day and the important testimonies, how is it that the headlines from these media outlets is that Floyd's a mama's boy? As if that would contribute to him being what? Anything. Anyway, I found it a bit frustrating and it just didn't make any sense. And just another reason why, if you're following the media on this trial, you're going to be horribly misled. This was Seth Stoughton. He's a law professor. He wrote a book on uh, evaluating police use of force. I thought he was a pretty strong witness as well. However, he said some things that I disagree with, and he also said some things that contradict what other prosecution witnesses have said, which is kind of going into what I said earlier about that opens the door to reasonable doubt. If you have professionals in the same area, and one of them is saying that what the officers did was reasonable until one point, and then the other one is saying it's reasonable or it's not reasonable at any point, it just show, it shows inconsistency that policy is different in different locations, and it's a bit fluid based on the person's personal opinion of the danger in that situation. So one of the things that uh, he said first was they were talking about passive and active resistance. And uh, so, for example, like passive resistance would be they don't want to put on handcuffs. They don't want to get in the car. And then the active resistance is actually physically resisting that action. So, uh, and then they need to take into consideration the threat from that. So a passive resistance doesn't offer a threat to where an active resistance does offer more of a threat. With that, Seth Stoughton said that officers need to consider the foreseeable effects. So, for example, shooting is a deadly act, even if it doesn't kill. So when you pull that trigger, you know that you could potentially kill the person. And another witness went into this later, and I'll talk about it more. But then he was also, so with the idea of a taser is not deadly. But then if you were to shoot somebody with a taser and they're standing on a cliff, the officer would need to take in different information, right? So if I shoot this suspect with a taser while he's standing on the edge of a cliff, he could fall and die. So then it would turn into, uh, you should foresee that this could result in death. Uh, He also pointed out that when Floyd was pulled from the vehicle, he said that he was compliant. So yes, he was actively resisting within the vehicle due to apparent his uh, being claustrophobic, but they pull him out of the vehicle, and then he says, thank you, once they pull him out. And then from that point, they put him on the ground. So he was saying that because Floyd said thank you, he said it's unnecessary to put Floyd in the prone position at all. And he says this because when Floyd says thank you, that the conflict is complete, is, is over at this point. So this is one of the points that I disagree with, and it also contradicted uh, most of the other professionals that the prosecution brought on that were talking about police use of force. You can't let a criminal or a suspect or anyone dictate what the police are and are not able to do. So if every single person says, I don't want to get in the car, so anyone that's going to be arrested says, "Uh, I don't want to get in that car, should the police just listen to them? Should they agree with them? Should they say, oh, okay, well, where do you want to go? 
well, I want to sit over there. So then they let them sit over there. I completely disagree with this. We cannot let criminals or suspects or anyone that is trying to be, that the police are trying to detain, dictate what happens to them. Just because they say thank you and, and suddenly, oh, okay, he's not going to resist, resist anymore. This is, this does not take risk or threat off the table, I think. So I think they absolutely should have, once they, he fought his way out of the car and he won't go in there, yes, put him on the ground and hold him. Now, like I've said before, starts changing as he becomes unconscious, and then you see there's obviously a problem. You have to change it. But anyone that's going to actively resist to that extent, especially, you have to completely control them just because they stop one second. Okay, okay, I'm done. Does that mean you should all let go of him? Of course not. Because he's, he, he was also repeatedly saying things that weren't true throughout the entire engagement, which has been shown over and over throughout this trial. You can't just trust somebody because they say something. So one of the things that he pointed out that I, I do think is pretty valid is that one of the officers suggested to put Floyd on his side, which means that they would perceive that the threat is, is lower. Because if they were still thinking they're in danger or that the threat was very high, then yes, it, the decision would be made that they need to keep him in that position or put him in the hobble, which they decided not to put him into. So one of the officers even on the scene that was dealing with that apparent high-stress situation suggests, oh, let's turn him on his side. So that would be evidence that, okay, the threat is low. We've got him under control. Now let's put him in side, side recovery. And with that, the officers also, while they were there, where they were discussing uh, the likelihood of his intoxication, which in their training they know that that raises the threat or the, the risk of putting him on his stomach with breathing. So uh, Seth Stratton pointed that out, that they should know based on, first of all, the prone position, you're not supposed to stay in that position. Second of all, they, it, it's it, because it's dangerous, and then with the drugs added that they were suspecting were in this situation, would make it even more dangerous. Then from that point, he just pointed out stuff that we've already talked about, which is he's, the officers check his pulse, and they see that he's unresponsive. So when they don't feel a pulse, there has to be some sort of action. And when they confirm that he's unresponsive, there's clearly no, th- no threat at that point. However, other, other people on both sides, so when the prosecution was questioning and the defense is questioning the other professionals, they all did confirm that people do go unconscious, and then they come back into consciousness and they fight even harder. And that was another thing that the defense brought up with this particular situation. But that's, so one of the things that Stoughton points out here is, yes, there's a risk of that, but a risk does not justify a lack of action. So every single situation that the police go into, there's a risk. But that doesn't mean that they can ignore a medical surgeon emergency because of a potential risk and that starts to change as the risk translates from risk to threat then obviously that changes and then they take into that that threat into account and then they change their actions one of the other things that they did is they went through the timeline and they broke down a very detailed timeline of everything that happened and they pointed out this is what I was talking about before is that the timeline matters. So one of the 
one of the things that the defense keeps bringing up is that the bystanders were causing a threat. They're being very hostile. Some were being held back at times. They're cussing, uh, yelling, all kinds of stuff to the police. And so because of this, the police felt threatened, and then they didn't feel safe providing medical attention. But I said a timeline matters. And this is what he's pointing out, that the bystanders were never hostile up until a certain point. So during that whole point before they were hostile, they were standing there. They were actually telling Floyd to get in the vehicle, and they were on the police side. But then once the police actions continued, once he's unconscious and not fighting back, then the crowd starts to turn against them. So they broke this down, and they showed a timeline that was very detailed that broke it down minute by minute. And and on top of that, one of the things he points out is that, you know, uh, Officer Tao, he didn't move in between the bystanders and the officers until six minutes in. So they were saying that, that Tao is there because of the threat, but they didn't even perceive the threat because they didn't have the police officer in the middle between them until far into the incident. So I think it's pretty clear that the, the, the bystanders were not a threat for the majority of the time. I do want to quickly go over this timeline that they used during the trial. Uh, I think it's pretty detailed. Uh, there, there are a little bit of problems with it, but for the most part, it's it pretty, pretty detailed and, and accurate. So they have, they have uh, it goes from left to right, and it's basically the start is 817. I know that most of the people that are listening, uh, the, the large majority are, are, are audio only, so I'll do my best to explain this, but basically a timeline of from 8.17 roughly to 8.30, and it breaks down the time from when the defendant arrives, and the defendant arrives at uh, 8.17 and 40 seconds. And it goes, it goes from there, and it breaks down each of the different time periods where stuff happens. And it just makes it easier to... easier. It makes it easier to really see everything that took place. At 8.17, Lloyd arrives on the scene. And then by 8.19, almost exactly 8.19, Lloyd is put in that prone position on his stomach. Then from that point at uh, 8.19 and 14 seconds, Chauvin, uh, Chauvin has his knee on the neck, and they list down at the bottom of this, that is the point where Floyd starts saying, I can't breathe. And he says that 27 times over the next, uh, what, it's from 8, 19, and 14 seconds to 8, 24. One of the, the issue that I have here is that this timeline, it doesn't, so it kind of ignores the entire situation where Floyd is fighting in the vehicle. They just leave it off off of this. And so... This isn't where he starts saying, I can't breathe. This might be where he starts saying it for the next time, but he clearly said, I can't breathe many times while they were trying to put him in the vehicle. So it's a little bit skewed towards the prosecution, obviously. This is a prosecution witness still, uh, and this before the defense started bringing up their witnesses. So it, it goes on from eight twenty thirty one. Officer Tao is asking them, should we put him in the hobble? Where 
the response is no. Then at 8.21.50, the officers point out that Floyd is likely intoxicated. And then at 8.22.18, the defendant, it says that the defendant is ignoring uh, the police for help. Again, to me, this doesn't say much because in large percentage of situations where you have someone being arrested, they will be making excuses, saying all kinds of stuff. So from the police perspective, the things Floyd was calling out and yelling about were the exact same before he's on the ground. So you can't expect them to know that, okay, this time maybe they're real, but last time they weren't. It's just an unrealistic expectation. So that was uh, at 2022 18 or 8-22-18. And then at 8-22-22, there's more bystanders starting to gather. Okay, so he's been on the ground for a while. You had that, that first bystander, the uh, older gentleman that testified during week one about what had happened. He had been there most of the time before that, and he was the one encouraging Floyd to follow instructions. And then you go from 8.22.22 to 8.23.47. And the officers ask if we should roll him over. And Chauvin says, no, he's staying put. So this is three things that the other officers have asked. Like, should we hobble him? No. Uh, They point out he's intoxicated. And then they ask if they should roll him over. Then at, so that's from 8.23.47 to 8.24.40. And they point out that he's passing out. So basically one minute later after they say, 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 do we roll him over? One minute later, they say he's passing out. And then there's still no action taken. And then from that point on, he is, Floyd is silent after that point. That is 8.24. And then from 8.24, what's it, sorry, 8.24.50, Lloyd is completely silent and not moving. At 8.25.58, they ask again, shall we roll him on the side? And they did not do it. From 825.40, the officer, one of the officers checks twice to find a pulse. They did not find it, and they still didn't change their action. Then at 827.33, they point out again that Floyd is not responsive. And then at 8. 828.42 Chauvin lifts his knee off the neck or back area for paramedics. So I think it does a pretty good job of breaking this down <clears throat> to where we can really see. I think this says a lot because you really see how many times the officers saw that there was somewhat of an issue and they still chose not to do anything. 
So I think this is a pretty good piece of evidence that really helped the prosecution. I don't think it helps the prosecution in necessarily proving murder, although I think it really steps up the fact that there's definitely some negligence going on. So while the prosecution was still questioning Seth uh, Stratton, his conclusion was that it did constitute deadly force. The police practice was not appropriate from the time he was on the ground. That's the whole time he's on the ground, shouldn't have been there. And there's no, and he said no reasonable officer would believe it was correct. And they did not render correct police aid by keeping him in the wrong position and not providing any assistance, especially once he went unconscious. Then the defense had a, got their opportunity to cross-examine Mr. Stoughton. One of the things they pointed out is similar to what I was saying. They asked him, does the suspect get to decide what, how the police treat them and where they put them? And, of course, the answer was no. And he said that he disagreed with previous witnesses who testified that going in the prone position was okay at the start. So this is, this is the bit of the contradiction between the prosecution witnesses. So the prosecution brings up these witnesses that are saying, yes, everything is okay up until this particular point, and now he's saying no. Even those witnesses are wrong. So it's undermining the previous witnesses that the prosecution brought up, which I think makes a bit of a problem and leads to reasonable doubt on what was the accurate policy to be used or techniques to be used. The defense also questioned Seth Stoughton about whether or not he can determine how much weight is on a body. And, of course, he said he could not. And then whether or not physical characteristics present a larger threat or risk for officers, and he confirmed, yes, that is true. And so this is going back to Chauvin being a very small guy. He's 140 pounds, and Floyd being 220, 30, or 40. I, I, I can't remember. I think I'd split the difference and say 230 pounds. So he's a pretty big guy. And then they mentioned the uh, use of force continuum, which shows that even with passive resistance, it does not stop the officer's ability to use force. So that is, they've used this several different times with different witnesses. Let me bring this up here real quick. So this is Minneapolis Police Department Defense and Control Response Training Guide. And it just, so on the left you see passive resistance, active resistance, and then active aggression. So for those people that are listening, this is a bit hard to describe, but you basically have a line going from the bottom left corner to the top right corner of this diagram. And as as the it angles up, there's higher levels of force that are allowed to be used. And then over on the left, passive force is on the very bottom. Active resistance, or I'm sorry, passive resistance is on the left bottom. Active resistance is in the middle and then on the left. And then active aggression is on the left top. So just as that line goes up and it hits these different zones, there's just different levels. So the pressure points and joint manipulation is down at the very bottom for passive resistance. And that does poke a hole in what Seth Stoughton is saying, that they should not use any force. Or they should not have put him on the ground at all. Because using pressure points and joint manipulation is part of the policy for passive resistance. However, if you go up a little bit higher into the active resistance, then you see uh, 
distraction techniques, controlled takedowns, and conscious neck restraints. And that's for active resistance. So then what you get is the argument that, no, he was not active resisting, but he was active resisting like one second before in the vehicle. He hits his knees coming out of the vehicle. And as he hits, he says, thank you, in the process that they're already taking him to the ground. So expecting an officer to, in that split second, make that decision to say, okay, this instant is passive resistance. Let's stop mid-takedown. I, I don't think that's realis- realistic. However, then once he's on the ground, the argument from the prosecution is that this is passive resistance and they're still using a conscious neck restraint on Floyd. But what other witnesses have pointed out is that, no, he's still wiggling around and moving. He's kicking his legs, which the prosecution's experts have then brought forward saying, no, these are simply attempts at breathing. He's not actually resisting. So you, you have this problem where one action could vary. The exact same action can mean two completely different things. And officers are not professionals to say, oh, this particular type of movement is him trying to breathe or him having a medical emergency because they're not trained in that area. They know they're trying to hold him down and he keeps moving around and wiggling and they keep saying, stop, hold still, and he's not doing it. But you would have the same thing happen if someone was to hold your head underwater and then tell you to hold still. And if you're slowly dying, you're obviously going to be struggling and fighting just as a natural body reaction. So... It, it's it's really hard to make a determination in this case, and I, I don't think you can expect an officer to know the difference. Okay, now I want to get into a little bit of the defense uh, witnesses. So first they called uh, Scott Creighton, and he had an occurrence in 2019 with Floyd, to show the, uh, and they, they brought him on to show the effects of opioids and not to establish anything about Floyd's character. They had pointed this out to the jury before, um, beforehand, but it seems to me like this is kind of directly towards his character or his tendencies, not necessarily how the opioids affected him. And earlier I talked about, I criticized a little bit how they brought his brother on and saying the defense then could bring, bring people from Lloyd's past about the bad things that he did. This I see differently, and here's the reason why. Not hypocritical. Here's why I think that is. Because this particular witness had a very, very, very similar interaction with Floyd in almost like the exact circumstance of what happened before. So in 2019, and so anyway, I I think it shows a pattern of behavior which directly relates to this particular situation. And I'll explain what that is. So in 2019, he did a traffic stop and he went up to the window and to the passenger window and that was Floyd's, Floyd sitting there on, in the passenger seat. And he was not being responsive and he wasn't listening to commands. And then he was acting nervous and strange. And finally, he gets him to put the window down and he's saying, please don't shoot me. And the police... He's asking him to relax, calm down, just undo his seatbelt. He said, I'm not going to shoot you. You're going to be fine. Just listen to what I'm saying. And then on the recording, you hear yelling, open your mouth, spit out what you have. 
and repeatedly asked him to spit it out. And I believe that was the other officer talking to the driver. Um, so the implication there is that the police are coming up and then they put a bunch of drugs in their mouth, uh, hide them. And so Floyd just keeps yelling, I'm not a bad man, I'm not a bad man. And then they eventually get him out of the car. So at first it seems like, <clears throat> okay, well, that was the driver putting the drugs in his mouth. So the person yelling, spit the drugs out, doesn't necessarily matter. But then the next person they bring up is Michelle Mosing. And she is a retired... Um, She's a retired paramedic who worked on Floyd that day. So he was in jail, and they brought her in. They did his blood pressure, which was 216 over 160, and later took him to the hospital. And he admitted to her that he took opioids every about every 20 minutes, and then he took more as the officer was approaching the vehicle. So that means that seems almost identical to what happened in this other in this recent case. So he said it was, he swallowed seven to nine pills every 20 minutes. I'm assuming that was seven to nine pills every 20 minutes taking one. So a total of up to nine pills. And then whatever he had put in his mouth when the officer came to the vehicle. And I think this is important because even in the, uh, Footage, which they talk about with another defendant, or another, uh, sorry, not defendant, another witness. They show the footage of Floyd when they come to the vehicle, and he does have a little white thing in the back of his mouth on his tongue. So, and I will talk about that a little bit later. The defense also called forward uh, Shawanda Hill. That was the lady that was with Floyd in the vehicle that day, and that was also the person that George Floyd's girlfriend uh, said was one of the people that sold them those bad pills. So between her and Maurice Hall, uh, they were getting those questionable pills from, and those were both the two people that were with him in the vehicle. And she testified that she had ran into Floyd and cup foods. And then they went out to the vehicle. He was acting fine in cup foods, but he had said that he was tired. Then they got in the car and he just passed out. So he falls asleep in the car. She said they tried to wake him up, and they could not. So this goes along with the line that uh, he had taken fentanyl because it makes him more tired. And it goes into what I was saying before is that, yes, fentanyl would lower the, the heart rate. And then, what was it, Dr. Tobin said, no, I can count the beats, and it's normal. But that would make sense because it's low, and then he gets in this big, with the police officers and he's being held down on the ground and it raises it back up to a normal level where if I go through a struggle like that I think a minute or so maybe a little bit longer I'm going to have a pretty high heart rate with the amount of struggling that was going on there so anyway she says that try to wake him and he would wake up for a moment he'd say something and then just pass back out and they tried to wake him more and they couldn't and then he was awoken by the police coming to the car I think this is pretty important because it does show the behavior of somebody who has taken opioids. If he did take more as the police were approaching, that would explain a potential 
cause for his medical condition that followed. The defense also brought forward uh, Peter Chang. He was the officer that was across the street, and during the struggle, he was with uh, Maurice Hall and Joanda Hill. And I didn't find his testimony particularly important. He said that he was concerned. He was viewing what was happening. He saw the, the crowd was very hostile, and uh, he could see it was gathering on each of the corner, street corners. There were groups of people gathering. And it was also busy traffic, so that, that, that gives the idea that there was a threat there and the officers felt surrounded and uncomfortable with the hostile actions, but at the same time, we already talked about how that timeline comes into effect. And then he also wasn't, he couldn't hear what was actually going on. He, he just heard the sound, so he didn't understand the buildup. Um, from his perspective, he's just over there and seeing people getting hostile. He doesn't know what has happened with Floyd or any of those details, so I don't find it particularly important. One of the things that I noticed, though, in his body cam footage uh, that I thought was important was just kind of the commentary from Shawanda Hill and Maurice Hall. And she's watching him uh, fighting the police, and she's saying, look, he's fighting. He's still fighting. What is he doing? Why is he doing this? Just get in the car. And uh, Hill is saying, man, what's he doing? Now he's going to go to jail. And as time's going by on the camera, it's pretty long. And they say, wow, he's still fighting. So they're even amazed. And you, with how long that video is, it, it also gives a, another representation of when you're just watching a video of two people standing there not doing anything, you see how much time is really going by. Um, and how long the officers were fighting with him before getting him subdued. Uh, so it's just pointed out that, you know, it wasn't only the officers that were seeing how much Floyd was fighting, but his two friends that he's there with, or drug dealers, ex-girlfriend, um, were pointing out the fact that, man, he is repeatedly fighting the police, and he will not stop. And then you also heard Maurice Hall say on the camera, which aligns with what Shawanda Hill said is that Floyd was falling asleep in the car. One thing that the prosecution did point out when they, when they uh, got to question uh, Officer Chang was that upon his arrival, he had, turned off of his <clears throat> he had turned off his sirens. And I do think this is pretty important. So before he arrived, he had his sirens on, and then he turned the sirens off because of a code 4, which means the scene is safe. It's pretty important because if, if the police officers felt like they were still in danger, they wouldn't radio in a code four that says it's safe. So at some point they must have decided it's safe. And then maybe the crowd escalated as time went by and they felt unsafe. But at some point they said, okay, we've got this under control. Code four, it's safe. And then at that point, they still didn't change any of their actions based on how they were dealing with Floyd. So, but, but the thing that I don't know is when that call came in. Did that call come in uh, before the struggle? Because if it, it was before the struggle to get in the vehicle, it makes a big difference and to whether or not, or if it was after the struggle. But there was a long period of time. Based on the events, I would say it has to have happened after the struggle because they wouldn't have had a, an emergency call before that because there was no fight. There was no resistance. They were speaking with him. They pulled him out of the car or 
got him out of the car. They walked over. They sat him down. So there was no emergency at that point. The emergency came when they were fighting with the struggle. So it only makes logical sense that they, they during the struggle, they called in for getting more assistance. Then they get him on the ground under control. And then they get code four. Okay, we have this under control. So I, I, <clears throat> I think that helps the prosecution with determining that the officers did feel some level of safety. And then there was no change in their actions. The next one I want to talk about is Barry, Barry Braun. He was a police con- or he's a police consultant in police practices and used to be an officer. He trains in defensive tactics and use of force primarily, and he's taught in the use of force for 45 years and certified by the FBI. Something interesting about him is the state reached out to him, and they ended up not using him, which, of course, they're not going to use someone that disagrees with them. But I did find that interesting that he was one of the people they reached out to, uh, as somebody that you would trust in this situation, but he happened to disagree with their goals or their desired outcome. So what he said is that Chauvin acted with objective reasonableness and complied with policy and current standards. Um, that's completely different than what we heard from other professionals. So it's it's interesting and it's difficult to say, well, which professional are you going to believe? And I think this is one of those things where reasonable doubt comes up because when that jury are sitting there deliberating on, on what they're going to do. You've got experts on both sides that are saying very different things. So one of the things that he was saying is that the the, the prosecution earlier had pointed out that the this amount of force being used for this sort of call, and this sort of call generally is a low-level call, he's saying that doesn't matter at all, which makes sense. So the initial call doesn't matter. And it's more so about how the person responds to the officer. And the police officer then just has to have some sort of reasonable fear and not wanting something worse to happen. So, for example, this is you know one of the things that stuck out as weird to me um, in other cases. So somebody gets pulled over for a taillight and they end up getting shot. And then you see uh, all over the news and social media and critics saying, oh, how can somebody, all they did was have a taillight out, and they end up dead. Well, that's that's not what happened. Obviously, there's something that happens once the taillight happens. And if you're one, okay, you get pulled over. You have a taillight out. They ask to see your ID. You refuse to show the ID. Then it just it escalates. So it's like, okay, so do we just let someone go when they're refusing to show ID? Because that's the option. You either let them go, or you say, no, you have to show me your ID. And then they do whatever process is necessary to get that ID from that person, which then escalates the situation to the next level, to the next level. So every single law comes down to a gun being aimed at you under the threat of death or some sort of punishment. So even the most minor offense can turn into a maximum penalty, depending on how you choose to respond to that. So I think it's a pretty bad argument to say, well, this is a low-level call and it escalated into this situation, which is... a the officer's fault. You know, uh, every situation is dealt with based on how the people respond to the officer on the scene. He goes on to explain that uh, he talks about deadly force, and this is going back to the taser thing that I mentioned earlier. He said this is not a use of deadly force. This is a technique that many officers use, and when they conduct this uh, this sort of strategy, there there is no 
notion in their head that they're committing an act that is deadly because this is a regularly used uh, technique to take down uh, suspects or to hold them down. Again, I think that's when they're conscious. Once they can become unconscious, this whole thing changes. But So he gave an example with a taser, and he was saying that even if you tase someone and they fall and hit their head and die, that was not deadly force. So it's the same thing with this. You take someone down, you put the knee on the neck. That by itself is inherently not using deadly force. It's not an intentional use of the deadly force. But someone could potentially result in dying from that, but it's not expected. It's pretty unusual that someone would die from that. He also talked about how drugs play a big part. When you're dealing with someone that's under the influence of drugs, they might not listen, or that maybe they're just not hearing at all. They might not understand, and they can have this superhuman strength, which we've heard about in earlier testimonies as well. So you have to be very careful when you're dealing with them. Also being an instructor or the use of force, he said that he, when he teaches his students, he teaches them do not remove handcuffs because they can start attacking you again. So this is a common thing that happens. And he trains officers to leave the cuffs on until they're in a medical facility with soft restraints. And then he pointed out that police wear uniforms, criminals don't, and they need to have their head on a swivel to try to determine who could and couldn't be a threat. So I guess this connects to the fact that the other officer that the defense had called up was talking about how there was people on every street corner. So if you were the officers, maybe you're paranoid that you don't know which one of these people could or could not be uh, a potential threat. But again, the timeline matters. So these people wouldn't have been a threat until halfway through the situation uh, when they were becoming more and more upset that there was no change in the officers once Floyd was becoming unresponsive. However, he also talked about how Floyd's, because of the type of resistance that Floyd had, it did allow for an even higher level of force that they chose not to do. So, again, we have to remember that it's not just innocent or guilty. There's there's several different charges here. And so each one of these things that they're talking about matters for a different charge. So yes, Floyd's resistance allowed for a higher level of force may not matter for the lowest degree of charge with when you get when you consider the negligence, but when you're thinking about the highest charge and whether or not this is murder and it then you go into the fact is it intentional? If you have a spectrum of force and you choose to go down several layers to a lower level of source that is not known for causing death, that kind of strikes that intentional murder or uh, the uh, second degree accounts, depending on which one we're looking at. But I'll, I'll go into those a little bit later. He also said that he doesn't consider the prone position as a that prone control as a use of force, but it's more just a controlling position. I'm not sure how much I agreed with this, and the defense also kind of, or I'm sorry, not the defense, but the prosecution when during their cross, they went into this a little bit as well and kind of broke down where is the line and how can he say that that is not a use of force, but it's based on the definition in, their, in the, the policy. Holding someone down, even in a control position, is a type of force, so he kind of definitely messed up there and it it 
hit on his credibility a little bit. He also talked about why this control was important and how even on the ground, so this is what I talked about earlier, whether you're getting choked to death and you're flailing or you're losing oxygen or you're being drowned and you're flailing or you're just resisting, it all looks the same. So he he went in and talked about how they were still active resistance while on the ground and he was appearing to kick at the officers, but the medical experts said, no, those were not. That wasn't resistance. That was the brain function starving for oxygen. And so they went in talking about that and the differences between those and how an officer wouldn't know the difference. He also talked about how someone who is under the influence of, of drugs needs to stay in the prone position to prevent them from hurting themselves so they can't get up and run. And also if they vomit, it can it, they won't choke on it. But that's comparing if they're on their back. If they're on their side in the recovery position, like the policy says, then both of those still are not issues. Yes, they can get up slightly easier from the prone position or from the side recovery position, but you've got three officers there. You could easily just hold a hand, each of them, hold a hand on him to keep him in place. So I, I don't think that's a super valid. And he also talked about how we can't just take the word, uh, uh, a criminal's word for it. So, for example, Floyd was saying, I will get in the car, I will, I will, but he wasn't. And he kept saying, yes, I'll do this, but then he wasn't. So also when he's shouting, I can't breathe, when he clearly could breathe. So throughout all of throughout all of this interaction, Floyd has repeatedly said stuff that the police officers have determined is not true. So as you would expect, they just continue to not believe him when a more serious issue tends, uh, comes up. He also talked about in his training where positional uh, asphyxia is generally just with obese people, so you don't necessarily have to be concerned about it unless the person is obese where it's more of a serious issue. So generally somebody that's healthy will not have any problem being in that prone position. And he said that the reason to not put him inside recovery was because he's up against a tire and there's they're in uh, a, a busy street with traffic going by. And the crowd issue and... From his opinion, what it had looked like and what the police may have thought is that he was still resisting. So then you have like a three-minute period where he's not moving, but because of the street and the car, that to hold him in that position until the med uh, medics arrive, or the paramedics. Then the prosecution got the question very broad, and they talked about, they started off by just asking about the side recovery, which... I, I I agree with the side side recovery is easy to get to and more safe. And it was he was asking for yes or no questions. He said yes. And he asked if there's a difference between risk and threat. And he said that there was and that you can't use force on risk. Or I'm sorry, you can't use force on risk, but you can on a threat. And they were establishing that there's a difference between Floyd being an active threat and being a risk. So when he was saying you keep him handcuffed and you keep him in that position and you keep that use of force because he's still a threat. They were they were saying that he's not actually a threat. He presents a risk, but he was not a threat at that time. So uh, that goes back to other witnesses who said that you cannot meet risk with force. So you have to wait for there to be a threat 
in order to use the force. Mm, use the force. So while being questioned by the prosecution, he also confirmed that police should recognize some sort of medical distress and that he confirmed that there was no difference in the police actions during that nine minutes from when Floyd was on the ground. So they put him on the ground with that use of force, which he's also saying wasn't a use of force, but to say for this, that yes, they had this, that they used the exact same tactics from the beginning of that to the end of that. And he confirmed that, yes, that's true. But they also asked him if he saw a change in Floyd from the beginning to the end. And he said, yes. So if there was a change in Floyd, which he confirms, then you would expect to see some sort of change in the police, which he says, no, he did not. So I think that was kind of a big deal for the prosecution. They also do this, uh, the prosecution also brought up these different images. So they're, they're showing freeze frames of all things. And I think this is kind of dishonest. And one of the things that the uh, prosecution did, they came up and they, with uh, one of the other uh, witnesses that the defense brought on and said, made comments about how, whether or not he was trying to purposely mislead the jury or confuse the jury. I think in reality, the prosecution was trying to mislead the jury in a way or confuse them because they're showing still frames. So they watch a video and they find a glimpse, a split second where where something matches the narrative that they're talking about. And they clip that and they show it repeatedly. And that's the same image you saw all over the news last week where they have Chauvin with his knee on the neck of Floyd. And then they've got it zoomed in and you can see on the toe where there's space light under the toe so you can see that his whole foot is off the ground. Now I rewatched this video several times to look and find where that was. And it was the smallest, tiniest fraction of a second where the toe slightly came up. And during that time, he reached out right as that happened. Then he reaches out within that same second and touches the vehicle to push back on his balance to get him back, his weight back on his foot. Um, so it, it was just, it's really dishonest. It's this one here. So you can see they've got him here and you can see in the picture and then they zoom it in. You can see that his weight's off. So they, they start talking about this, like his entire weight is on the body, but it's not. If you rewatch the whole context of the footage, the foot is only off the ground for a split second. You have to, You'll probably, if you watch it once, you won't find it. You'll have to go back and watch and make sure you don't blink because you'll miss it. Uh, so they point this out to him, and they just show the freeze frame. Does his, talking about, is his, his foot off the ground? Can you see that? And he said, yes. If his foot was off the ground, something about wouldn't it imply that there's more weight? And it's, yes, they only want him to answer yes or no. So this is very misleading, and it's, when I first saw this photo, I was like, oh, wow, that does look like he's got a lot more weight on him than I thought. And then I went back and watched it. It's like, no, it's just, you know, trying to show everything, with show this without any context. So the th- and the, the thing that that also doesn't address is how much weight is on his back knee. So if you're ever, if you've been in that position before, which I have been, you can distribute your weight onto your back knee and forward knee pretty easily. So even if his foot is off the ground, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a, a significant amount, like he's leaning his whole weight into that knee. It just, it, it depends. You can't, you have to know the weight distribution, and we don't based on that footage. 
the prosecution was also asking him uh, about the how he was resisting, and he, he and Broad pointed out or Broad pointed out that he didn't have his hands behind his back where a person that's uh, being compliant would. And the prosecutor points out like he's fighting for oxygen, and he said, "Well, he should be laying comfortably with his hands behind his back." Like when I say comfortably, I, which I'm assuming he also meant was like laying still. Not moving, just keep your hands behind your back, resting, so the officers know that you're not resisting. But in <clears throat> but in the video, you can see him moving and squirming, which, again, the medical people have told us this is because he's struggling for oxygen, so he keeps moving. So he's telling us that because of that, with, with Floyd moving and his hands off to the side instead of behind the back, to an officer, this tells him that they're resisting. He heard them say no pulse and that a reasonable officer would know uh, that someone is unconscious or has no pulse. One thing that I would have liked them to ask was, because throughout this trial they've, they've asked a lot of hypotheticals, I would have been curious to hear them ask the question, if you're in that position or if a reasonable officer is in that position and someone goes unconscious or has no pulse, what would you expect them to do? Because they, they didn't ask this sort of question that gets like cuts through all of the, so what he's trained people to do. I think if you come down to it and you get to the most important part, which is the unconscious part, and they stay on him during that time, would he train his officers under the use of force program that he uses to just stay on them and do nothing because that would be in direct contradiction to the police policy as well that you're supposed to provide medical attention. So then the defense got to come back and and speak with him again. And you know what, what the other, what the prosecution also did, they showed a short glimpse or not even a glimpse. It was a snapshot of Chauvin's because he was saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And they showed a still frame picture of Chauvin's uh, arm around the neck of Floyd, where it kind of looks like he's choking him a little bit. So the defense comes back. One, they show the full video of uh, Chauvin on top of Floyd during that that clip of time where the toe comes off the ground for a split second to show, no, when you look at the whole context, that, that whole line of questioning, it should be gone, basically, because it doesn't even align. And then they also show the full video of it in the back seat from the context of with that arm around the neck. And it, it's very clear when you watch the video, you can even see space in between the whole time. But they found one glimpse of a second where that arm looks like it's tighter on the neck. And then they chose to go on that. But the video, again, the arm is clearly not tight and there's a, a bunch of space. So it, it's very misleading, I think. And uh, I, I didn't think it was very honest, really. And I, I thought it hurt the prosecution more than anything to show such a deceptive image that can be then debunked a moment later. Next person that the defense called was uh, David Fowler. He's a retired forensic pathologist since 1986 and office of chief medical and worked in the office of the chief medical examiner. He's also a university professor and educator for hospitals and the FBI. And he's a forensic pathologist trainer. And he works with a group of uh, 13 peer reviewers on the forensic 
on a forensic panel involved in the case, uh, and there's toxologists, pulmonologists, and physicians, and others. And it's the National Association of Medical Examiners, so he's uh, on this board, I, I guess. And he went in, uh, first started talking about the death certificate, and there's uh, there's two parts to it. So one is the cause of death, and, and two is the significant conditions contributing to the cause of death. And based on Baker's analysis, so then they take the death certificate and they, they analyze it based on the language used. And they said based on Baker's analysis, uh, how did the heart and drugs play a role? And he said that there was, they were significant to him having this sudden issue. In his opinion, had a sudden cardiac arrhythmia due to atherosclerotic, which is the uh, atherosclerotic hypertensive heart disease, during his restraint by police, which is the atherosclerotic is the plaque buildup in the arteries. And the significant contributors were fentanyl and meth, carbon monoxide, or the effects from carbon monoxide in the bloodstream, and the paraganglionoma, sorry, or other natural diseases processed that he had. So one of the interesting things about this was the carbon monoxide. We have not heard anything about that during the trial, and he went into a bit more depth about that that I'll talk about as well. He also talked about what it means to have homicide on the death certificate. So I'll read uh, the article that they pulled up. Homicide occurs when death results from a volitional act committed by another person to cause fear, harm, or death, intent to cause death, is a common element but is not required for classification as homicide. It is to be emphasized that the classification of homicide for the purpose of death certificate is a natural term and neither indicates nor implies criminal intent, which remains a determination within the province of legal process. So one of the things to point out is that, that yes, Baker may, uh, on the autopsy, had put a homicide but as the same thing that he was saying is homicide doesn't mean anything as far as uh, intent or criminal liability. It's just a classification, which is different than the legal sense. So he pointed that out as well and pointed out that there's, it doesn't dictate any legal standing. Uh, next, he talked about the cardiopulmonary arrest in Baker's autopsy. And they went in talking about the size of the heart. And they had previously talked about this, but he had a bit more certainty in what he was saying was that there there are two different studies. So before we hadn't necessarily heard that there were these two different studies, the Mullen and the Mayo. And it talks about the different sizes of heart within those. And based on those, he's saying that Floyd's heart was enlarged in it at 540. And this is the reason that there was some debate before in saying that it could be enlarged in some cases and not in others is because of the variation with the size of the individual. And he so he broke that down and talked about how Floyd does fall into the larger oversized heart category. And because of this enlarged heart, like we've said like I've said before, is that it requires more oxygen, more blood. And when you have the coronary arteries that are supposed to be replenishing this with at a, a higher rate, especially with uh uh, the activity that's happened and the drugs in his system. Um, his, and his heart is racing 
getting short of breath, chest pains, and then it can collapse without warnings because it uses up the amount of reserves that are there, and then it, it just can no longer support itself because it's not getting enough quick enough. So I, I don't know how this necessarily plays into what the the previous guy told us about the the heart that has makes new passageways if there's a, a closure in the artery. So it would be interesting to hear a back and forth between these two, but that's not something that we get. Another thing with the arteries that he pointed out that I hadn't got before is he was talking about a proximal narrowing are being more dangerous than distal narrowing. So a proximal, so basically, uh, like if you're shooting water down a hose, if the block is at the end, it's less dangerous. But if it's at the beginning, then it's more dangerous. So if you have a hose and it has a bunch of sh- things offshooting from it, if there's a blockage at the end, all of those offshoots are still going to be fully functioning and working. But if you have a blockage at the beginning and you just have water draining through, then all of those all of those different routes are then not getting what they're supposed to get. And something that he pointed out, which was that in Floyd's case, all his narrowings were the approximal narrowings, which are the ones that are closest to the heart. So that means that all of the other uh, passageways from that point on are all being restricted instead of it towards the end. And he pointed out that and then with that, you add the meth, which meth is dangerous because it increases the heart rate and causes the arteries to narrow. With that and stress, which causes adrenaline to be formed and vessels to restrict even more and the heart rate to speed up. So it's more restriction with uh, higher pressure and all of that's being restricted. So it's, it's really like mixing the perfect storm to create a problem here is kind of what he was saying. Then he goes into the carbon monoxide, and this wasn't something that we uh, heard before. So he's talking about how uh, that vehicle, apparently the vehicle was running, is what he said, uh, but he was also cross-examined on this by the prosecution, and he said he cannot prove that it was, but he had asked about it, and that was the information that he got back. So the vehicle's running, and then Floyd's head, I guess, is a, about a foot away from where the exhaust would be. And because of that, they go into the science behind it. I'm not going to go through all that but it leads to a partial poisoning. And an example that he used was that uh, a taxi driver actually was able to commit suicide by doing this. So he started his car and he went and laid right behind the car uh, about a foot away from the exhaust and ended up dying because he just, I guess, fell asleep and, and died. They pointed out that Lloyd's blood wasn't tested, and so you, you couldn't get an actual reading of how much carbon monoxide poisoning there was in his, in his blood or in his system. And he, he pointed out that this test they do with the thing on the finger, it's not actually accurate because carbon monoxide hides from that. So even if you have the 98% uh, oxygen, uh, that can be hidden somehow because it disguises itself as oxygen on that particular test. So you actually need the blood test. Uh, to do that. So in that seven minutes where Floyd is laying there, he's saying that he could have increased to 10 to 18% uh, carbon monoxide and that someone as low as 6% or someone as low as 6% that is exercising can have problems. So 
if he was just in that struggle. And then he gets exposed to this, and it raises 10 to 18%. It could actually cause him problems with all the other things that are also going on at that same time. Another thing they went into was the discussion about the prone position and the studies. So previously, uh, in one of the witness testimonies uh, last week, they talked about these prone studies where weight is put on the back of an individual in on an individual. So they have a pad, they lay them down, and then they put them in this position, handcuff and legs up, and then they start putting weight on their back. And they said this is not accurate because one, the weight is displaced across the back wider. So even you get up to 225 pounds, I believe it was, yeah, 225 pounds on this test, and people had no problem. It's different when you compact that into the size of a knee in one location. So they asked about these studies and if they were flawed, and he pointed out, no, they're not flawed. They're very accurate, Um, but it is a different circumstance. And he went on to talk about Chauvin's weight being 140 pounds with a single knee in a location where weight is uh, distributed differently across the two knees, that less than 23% of his weight, which is far less than the lab experience, would have actually been on Floyd's body, which is... You know, I added an extra 20 pounds to that for the equipment and that for his police equipment that people say it's like 20 or 30 pounds. So that's roughly 40 pounds on Floyd's neck in that, in that region based on the weight distribution they were talking about with one knee versus two knees. And when it's two knees, the difference in variation of weight. So that was 23% and then obviously 23% of 60 And he pointed out as well that the knee did not obstruct any vital areas. And which, another thing that contradicts a little bit of what a previous testimony was, that the lack of marks speak to the amount of force being used, but a previous person had testified that the lack, if you have marks, it's great, but a lack of marks does not necessarily mean anything because people bruise differently, so it it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But he's saying that the lack of marks if you were saying the knee is responsible uh, because of the pressure there is responsible for leading to Floyd's death, that then he would expect to see these marks. And uh, he responded to hypoxia leading to the shortness of breath, and he pointed out that the breathing was slightly higher than normal, but it wasn't abnormal, and it certainly wasn't rapid like you would see in a normal hypoxia case. And especially with Floyd saying he had a phobia, where he just got done fighting to get out of a vehicle because of a phobia, phobia, you would expect a much higher heart rate with that flight or fight response, and it was barely over normal, so it doesn't align with uh, hypoxia. And even and with the hypoxia, he didn't see the gradual signs of hypoxia throughout that process, and it was more of a sudden death. Uh, as far as asphyxia due to compression, he said that it can lead to hypoxia, but the brain would be affected first, and he saw more of a sudden change. So he saw Floyd making clear statements, and then silence, and suddenly no movements, all within a minute period. So for, for him, that was a more of a sudden death that did not fit the hypoxia. The conclusion was that Floyd suffered sudden cardiac events because his heart is vulnerable because it's too big. It demanded more oxygen. He had narrow vessels. Drugs uh, raised the risk of his arrhythmia, 
the fentanyl slowing his breathing, which lowered oxygen, carbon monoxide further took oxygen, and then with all that with uh, vessel restri- restriction. And it's all working together to deprive Floyd of oxygen. And the heart exhausted its reserves, and it just couldn't keep up and stop. They also showed him the video of Floyd with uh, some white substance in his mouth that when they were talking about uh, the, the fact that he may have ingested something as the police were coming up to the car. And so in this image, if you're audio only, there's an image where Floyd has got his mouth a bit open and you can see a little white thing in the back of his mouth. And they're pointing out that this similar to what he did in the previous, uh, in that other case in 2019, where he admitted to putting drugs in his mouth once the police were approaching. That argument was what that he did this again, and then it led to him having that overdose, a more severe overdose later. So he confirmed that yes, it does look like this, and that would be one of the reasons to uh, that led to his death. That would also make sense that in the backseat of the vehicle uh, last week, they went over the drugs that they found in the back of the vehicle that also had Floyd's saliva on them. So at some point, those drugs were certainly in his mouth, and here you have an image of a little white thing in his mouth as the police come up to the vehicle. So he likely put those in his mouth is what it seems like. So finally, they ask him for his opinion on the causes of death. He says cardiac arrhythmia due to hypertensive cardiovascular disease during the restraint and contributing factors were the substances ingested, mixing with carbon monoxide, and the potential of paraganglionoma was adding adrenaline, which made things worse. The prosecution then got to question him, and they showed a footage of, uh, first they were talking about the pill that they was seen in that image in Floyd's mouth, and they show footage of Floyd in the cup of cup foods, and he was looked like he's chewing gum and he had something white in his mouth. However, this camera angle was from a ways away and the image looked pretty big. It was like clearly like a big piece of gum that he was chewing on. But then in this other image, the one that I just showed a moment ago, it's a camera right up close to his face and you barely see this little white thing in his mouth. So to me, it looked like two different things. They pointed out, you know, asking Fowler, do you know what was in his mouth? Doesn't that white thing also look like this white thing? And he confirmed, obviously, he doesn't know for sure what was in his mouth. And yes, it does look like the same thing that he was chewing in the store. One of the other things that the prosecution did that I didn't like, during uh, Fowler's uh, questioning with the defense, he, he, he pointed out that in a previous study, uh, it had been said that the prone position was dangerous, and then it was later recounted by that same person, and they bring up documents saying, no, it wasn't recounted, which would be a big deal, or recanted. And so they show him this document that, where the, the author says that the prone position is still dangerous. So then the defense has to come back again and then show the full context once again, and it turns out, okay, yes, he, he did take it away, or he did not take it away for people that are obese. He's saying that it's still dangerous for people that are obese, but they leave that part out and they question him on just based on this small section and it made it look like he was lying before. But then when you get the whole context, then he's able to explain, no, as you can see here, this is only about the obese people, but an, a healthy individual, then the risk assessment goes way down. 
However, he does confirm when he's asked that if immediate medical attention was uh, given right once the cardiac arrest took place, could it have potentially saved him? And he said yes. And they asked him, do you think he should have received medical attention? And he says, as a physician, I would agree. So that's pretty big. And this goes back to what I've been saying for the last couple of weeks now is that all the stuff that they did maybe is warranted up until this point. But once he's unconscious, it absolutely should have changed something, and it didn't. And they also ask him about the fentanyl, about how his heart rate was only maybe a little bit above average, and shouldn't the fentanyl have slowed it down? And he confirmed that, no, that's not necessarily the case, which is kind of what I was arguing before. It's not the case based on the exertion that he just had right before that and with the phobia issue that would take his low heart rate from fentanyl and raise it back up. Uh, And the last thing is the carbon monoxide. So this is a little bit of a weird situation. They came in uh, the next day uh, to bring Tobin back in to to discuss this. And the judge said you cannot talk about the testing um, of the carbon monoxide because they, they get the report a long time ago and they chose not to look into this and get the information. So then at 8 in the morning on day 14, which is the last day, they send it to the defense, this new information that they suddenly have. But Dr. Fowler had already left. So they wanted to put Tobin back up there to explain this carbon monoxide issue now that Fowler was gone, and then he wouldn't be able to respond to that. And so the judge said, no, you cannot do that. But apparently... There was this blood test that didn't get sent over and that they had just found. And then they wanted to... Apparently it says that it was 98% oxygen. And so the max of carbon, carbon monoxide could have been two. And I don't know the science behind that, but I, I guess it doesn't mean that it's two. It just means the max it could be is 2. So then if it's 95, the max it could be was 5. But it's not necessarily 5. And that contradicted a bit of what Fowler said before. And so uh, the judge said they could not talk about it, but then they brought Tobin in, and Tobin still talked about that briefly. He touched on it, and the judge specifically said not to, and that if he did, it'd be a mistrial. So that was a little bit strange that... That was allowed to happen. So as far as the carbon monoxide, it sounds like that wasn't an issue, but the jury um, didn't get to hear the whole situation about that. And so the amount that they got from Tobin was, you know, kind of like half of the information. And then they still have the other information from uh, Fowler. So I don't know where that's going to lie. All right, so now, for the last time, I want to go over the charges. First, I want to go over the second-degree unintentional murder. So, uh, causes of causes the death of a human being without the intent to affect the death of any person while committing or attempting to commit a felony offense other than criminal sexual conduct, da-da-da-da-da. I don't think that they can get a conviction on this because they can't show that this act itself was a felony because you see police officers doing it all the time. Uh, The knee on the neck is debatable. There's different angles that show the knee sometimes right on the neck. Sometimes it it looks like it's on the back. And then you see in the police policy manuals and the PowerPoint they showed, you have this exact same position 
being taught for police to do. So the next one we'll talk about is the manslaughter in the second degree. Uh, by the person's culpable negligence, whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes the chance, chances of causing death or great bodily harm to another. The challenge with this one is the unreasonable risk, creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes a chance of causing death. I, I, I'm not sure that anyone has shown that he consciously takes the chance of causing death by using this police procedure, but I guess the argument's going to come in when the jury's talking about once he's unconscious and he chooses not to make any take any different action, is that the unreasonable risk? I think it could be the unreasonable risk, but I'm not sure if he consciously takes the action of causing the death because of some of the contradictions in the testimony and the defense witnesses that claim that this is uh, within the policy and within the rights of the officer. And then finally is the murder in the third degree. Whoever without intent to effect the death of of any person causes the death of another person of another by perpetuating an act eminently dangerous to others and invincing a depraved mind without regard for human life. This one I think is difficult as well because I don't know how they can, they, I'm not sure that they've proven that without regard for human life. And I'm not sure that they've proven anything about a depraved mind. And I'm not sure that they've shown that this is an eminently dangerous act. Because again, we've had several testimonies that say different things uh, from experts on both sides, and even the prosecution's experts have contradicted each other at different times. So that causes a problem. I think getting guilty charge on any of these without reasonable doubt is going to be a real challenge. And I think there's a really high probability that there's a hung jury, and it's going to be a big problem because there's going to be crazy riots because of this. But be honest, any one of these charges, uh, if anything is not guilty, there's going to be riots. Even if all three were guilty, 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 there's still going to be, I presume, riots and destruction. Uh, so it's just one after another. And even if he's guilty, probably still going to happen because that doesn't speak to the larger picture. And they're still going to say that uh, the United States justice system is inherently and systemically racist. And that one case doesn't mean that that's been fixed. So it's, it really won't make any difference. But I think there's high probability of a hung jury or guilty. I don't think that they're going to be, there's going to be an acquittal. I think, I think if this wasn't a high profile case, then maybe could be. But the other thing about these jury members, they're going home every night and they're just asked not to read the news. I feel like they should have been sequestered from the beginning because I, I don't know how you can trust people to go home and not look at any news. And especially with this case, if you were to read the news, you could have a complete misconception of, of what's being presented and how it's being taken because it's just completely dishonest. So I hope that the jury is honest and not looking at any news not and staying off social media, but who knows? So they got a long weekend, and then on Monday they will hear the closing statements, 
and then jury will begin their deliberation. So hopefully sometime next week there's a verdict. And then I will do one more of these just as a final recap to go over my opinion of the charge of the the verdict and the probable violence that's breaking out over the place because of it. So until next time, this has been Systemically Distorted Communications.